Hey, it's Ray Farrell from TSN and the Ray and Dregs Hockey Podcast. I was going through some stuff and I realized there's another podcast out there, the Hockey Minute. Farrell steals, cutting in, shoots, scores! They slayed the dragon! Really? Another hockey podcast? Another podcast in general? And like, is it a minute long or is it like a full podcast? the first open ice big hit that Scott Stevens has thrown in the series. Paul Correa landed on his back and didn't move. And the fans on their feet because Paul Correa has just come back from the dressing room wow. and onto the bench. Into the zone, Sakura kicked it out, got it back near side Correa. Correa, the fans want one. really can't get behind this idea. I mean, like, what the hell do you know about hockey? And who is the hockey man? Who? Like, anybody. Anybody know? Curry, McSorley, to Gretzky! Scores! He did it! He did it! A greatest goal scorer in National Hockey League history! Find out. Listen. Check it out. I mean, it's only going to take a minute. It won't take that much time. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to see if this podcast is any good. But do you even know how to skate? And after 22 years, Raymond Mark! Be well, Hockey Minute. Be well, Brandon. Later. All right. Uh, joining us is Harmon Dial of The Athletic. Harmon is the Canucks beat reporter with emphasis on analytics and video. Harmon, man, thanks so much for doing this. Welcome to the show. Thanks for... for so, well, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so, we were, all good, Ben. We were joking that, um, you know, I think you'd botch your first uh, intro take. And then I was joking that anytime I would run a podcast, I would botch and just kind of like stumble over my words anytime I would do like my podcast intro. And then now how, how funny is it that I stumbled over <laughs> trying to say thanks for having me on. So, Oh, that's, it's all good, man. I guarantee I will screw up at least three of the next uh, four questions. So let's, uh, let's, let's get right into it. I figured we start with the, the Canucks talk and uh, the Canucks coming off a win last night against the Habs, but uh, I just, I want to talk about JT Miller playing center. I mean, he, he finally looks good. I mean, compared to what he's looked like for the rest of the year, but how do you see the team uh, handling EP 40 coming back? Do you think they, they have the depth to move Miller or to, to keep Miller at center or, or are they going to have to keep him uh, back on the wing? Yeah, that's something that I've been grappling with just because when you do bring Pedersen back into the fold, I mean, it's really appealing the idea of having Pedersen, Horvat, and Miller uh, all playing center. That's th That gives you a high-end scoring threat on every line uh, in your top nine. The only issue is, as you mentioned, I'm not sure that Vancouver's winger depth is deep enough to sustain um, that, kind, th that, that kind of combination Long term, you'd have to rely on Adam Cadet probably in your top six, which, yeah. which good for him. He scored last night, and I think he's due for a lot better luck given all the chances that he's been able to create. But I'm not sure that he's a top six winger for you full time. 
Uh, you'd obviously be relying a ton on Nils Hoglander, and, and he's had an awesome season, great for him. But I'm not sure if you really want to lean on him in, in sort of a top-line role, just because I feel that when you have a rookie, unless he – unless you know he's a superstar talent right away, it's probably best to allow him to gradually work up the lineup. And so I'd actually prefer to have Hoglander not have so much pressure and expectation on, on him in that kind of a top flight role, even though he's doing really well there right now. Uh, and then beyond that, I just, once you move Miller to center, it's just, I look at that left wing depth and I'm like, okay, you've got uh, Pearson as your best left winger then and then and, and then it really thins out after that uh, so from that perspective I mean last night we had to see a line with uh, with Sutter, Michaelis and, and Best for instance when Travis yeah. Green hit hit the blender so I mean obviously that was with, with Pedersen uh, out of the lineup and that was just another look that they went to but um, I just look at the the team's winger depth and, I'm, and as much as I like the idea of, of of keeping that experiment going with Miller at center. And, and Hey, maybe that's an option you go to if when Patterson rejoins the lineup and uh, Patterson and Miller are playing together, let's say maybe they don't, you know, maybe they don't click for instance. And, uh, and you can go back to, you, you can try Miller, Patterson and Horvat each centering their own line as a secondary look to see uh, if things are, if things can click that way. Um, but I'm not sure that that's the default option I'd go to. Can you ever see anything kind of crazy like putting Bo on the wing for a game? See, the the one that I've actually seen floating around that kind of perked uh, my interest was Patterson at wing um, because he obviously spent uh, most of his time in Sweden before coming over to the NHL, at least when he was playing that final year in the SHL, mm-hmm. uh, on the right wing, I believe. Um, so that kind of complicates things because Besser also plays the right side, but um, there's been that kind of suggestion, especially because you do have, uh, we've seen recently anyway, uh, if Miller and Besser are clicking and can kind of drive their own line, then who knows, Pedersen and Horvat could be something interesting. And, and you'd finally see Horvat get a real top six, uh, top oh, six help on his, uh, on his line. And obviously that Horvat line hasn't really been going uh, over the last uh, three or four weeks. And, and I think that's been the biggest issue for the Canucks this season is for most of it, you've only really had one line going at any given time. In the first 10 games or so, 10, 15 games, the Horvath line was producing, but then the Pedersen one was really struggling. Pedersen wasn't producing. Miller had his slow start. Uh, and then as that lotto line started to turn the corner, the Horvath line stopped producing. Like I think... Pearson's got what? I can't even remember the exact number off, off the top of my head, but he's only got a few points in the last, I think, 15 games or so. And, and Horvat has scored on the power play, but his 5-5 five and five scoring just hasn't been there uh, consistently enough over the last 15 games or so. And through it all, we know the bottom six hasn't been contributing much. So to really right this ship, uh, you're going to need at least to have both top six lines going. And, and for that to happen, at least the fact that you've seen Miller successful at the center, it, it for Travis Green opens up the array of possibilities and gives you a lot more flexibility to try different things and just to see whatever sticks. So that's at least an, an encouraging sign, regardless of what specific look they go for when Pedersen does immediately return to the lineup. Just knowing that you have a bunch of different options you could go to if the first one doesn't stick. 
And it's just, it's nice seeing JT Miller engaged like he was last year. Like I think a lot of Canucks fans were starting to worry that maybe what they saw last year was an aberration, right? It was going to be a career year and we were going to see more of the uh, emotional uh, negative side of, of JT Miller kind of leaking into his game like we've seen through the early parts. But maybe this kind of jump start is what they need and they can kick him back to the wing and you'll still keep that kind of engaged uh, engaged attitude. But you, you, you touched on him a little bit just a minute ago, but what have you made of Adam Goddard's year so far? I mean, I know he's struggling to put up any, any offense, but uh, the effort is certainly there. 100%. You're always going to get the work rate out of him. That's one thing that I always appreciate. and um, Definitely think he's been... He's been unlucky uh, in terms of the number of chances he's created offensively and, and how many have actually found the back of the net. He's clearly been snake, snake bitten here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do expect some positive regression in terms of his offensive production. Uh, that said, I do look at... Um, for, for me, it's not necessarily about Goddard's offensive game. For me, the question has always been about what's the next step in terms of his two-way profile? And that's where I still think that uh, as a play driver, someone you can trust on both ends of the ice, he's still a work in progress. Uh, I think the fact that he's now being moved to the wing for Vancouver's long-term plans isn't ideal. Uh, I think it's clear at this point that like, I completely understand why the Canucks moved him to wing because he's not, he's, he doesn't have the two-way skill set to, handle the responsibilities of playing center. Uh, but in the organization's long-term, long-term interests, I mean, they now really clearly need a, a, a third-line center to build for the future where uh, you've got Pedersen and Horvat, that's going to be your backbone, but Brandon Sutter's going to be UFA. And, uh, you don't want to rely on him in that kind of a role uh, for any longer than this season. Uh, and, and and what the Canucks really need is, is kind of a, a matchup center that can sort of take some of the burden off of Horvat that can kill penalties um, and, and can just sort of consistently help drive play and then chip in with some secondary offense. Uh, almost do the kind of role that, and I know he's having a really good year this year in, in a higher capacity, but almost the role that like a Joel Eriksson would play for the Minnesota Wild uh, in that kind of sort of shut down role. Mm-hmm. And I think it's clear that Goddard's 2A game isn't going to progress enough to the point where he can fulfill that kind of a role. I remember coming into the season, talking to Jim Benning, they were sort of seeing if they could uh, grow that, that part of his game, get him to kill penalties, but doesn't seem like that's in the cards right now. And so just that positional switch, I think does minimize his long-term importance to this team. Um and, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. And, and I think right now it's going to be incumbent on Godet, Godet to sort of establish what exactly is his identity uh, at the NHL level, where as a winger, he's going to have to show that he's more than just the next Sam Gagne, right? Where Sam Gagne would be that sheltered scoring player who could help you on the power play, was a bit of a defensive liability. And you've seen how he kind of floats around through teams uh all over the nhl he hasn't really found a consistent landing spot uh, and that's because teams look at a guy like him like a like a guy like gagne and say he's got a good uh, a good level of skill here he can help you on the power play but he's not skilled enough to play in your top six and he doesn't really have the other elements that we want to see out of a typical bottom six player so yeah. Um, that's where I think you, you still need to see Adam Gadet's game kind of round out. I think cutting down on the neutral zone turnovers, 
just just in terms of defensive zone reads, all those things I think are going to be important for him to really stick it as a long-term piece for this franchise, more, more important than the offense, which I think is only a matter of when, not if. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty good analysis on his game. And just the, the one thing I've noticed, though, with moving him to the wing is that, <clears throat> I mean, just the way that the game has evolved, we're generally seeing larger wingers for the board battles and a, a more diminutive center. And he's he's having struggles with keeping his weight on and kind of winning those board battles. So we've kind of they've thrust him into a position that he's a little bit weaker in. Yeah, and this has obviously consistently been something that he's tried to work on. And I guess the hope would be, if you're the Canucks, that, uh, we heard from Godet, I think it was at training camp, where he had a stomach issue that was preventing him from being able to bulk on and add a little bit of size. And when you look at Godet's frame, uh, he's, you know, he's average height. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think he's at least six feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's always kind of been that he's a little bit slight, a little bit too lean for his, uh, for his height. And so I think once he can, you know, not now with that realization of what the issue was, he can hopefully bulk up a lot easier, uh, sort of gradually increase strength. I know with this crazy schedule, he's not going to be able to do it mid-season, right? So yeah. um, th- that's perhaps something that uh, over the off-season could be a little bit of help. But yeah, I mean, it's areas like puck battles. It's it's being able to get with a guy like Godet. It's it's being able to win that battle um, in your own zone that helps you get the puck out. It's uh, it's being able to to when you do when you are carrying the puck in the neutral zone, having a strong enough stick uh, to be able to hang on to it and not be stripped uh, of it in a compromising position. It is just generally being able to be be really involved in the play. And I think a lot of the physical elements got at the game. I think we've seen that his skating is there. It's now about being able to become stronger and then also just mentally how quickly he reads plays and how he um, processes what's going around, going around him. It, it sometimes feel, feels like, and I think the, it was really evident in the playoffs where the play almost, the, the pace of the play can sometimes be a little bit quick for Godet in terms of how he's making decisions defensively. Uh, he can sometimes seem like he's um, struggling to tread water uh, without the puck. And I think those are just the areas that he needs to hone in on to really be uh, a long-term difference maker for this franchise. Just when you were talking earlier about the the three center hole for the, the Canucks, and I was just, as you're talking, I was thinking that doesn't sound like a rookie player coming in. Like I know people are pretty upset about Tyler Madden being shipped out for, for Tyler Toffoli playing seven games or whatever he played for the franchise. But uh, I, I, I still don't think Tyler Madden is kind of the solution for this team, even if he were still a part of the franchise. It seems like they're going to have to look outside for a, some kind of veteran presence. Yeah, I mean, Madden wouldn't have been, yeah, uh, maybe in the long term, uh, yeah. because he definitely has he's play, play center. And um, I really do like his, uh, his offensive tools. But yeah, I mean, he wouldn't have been ready, I think, for that kind of responsibility as soon as next season. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I think the third line center has to be one of the top priorities for this team coming into the off season, because it's not just the, that sort of hole in a vacuum. It's the fact that if you're able to find the right third line center, then that's almost the key to unlocking Horvat's game mm-hmm. where you're able to free him up offensively. The talk going into this season was maybe Patterson's line can take on a lot more of, of the tough match of the 
of the tough matchups. And then from that point onward, uh, you're able to free up Bo and, and now he's got Hoaglander. And so maybe there's, there's something there to where he can be a lot more free offensively, but that really hasn't manifested. We've still seen Bo get the, the toughest matchups. And I think just having a third line that can sort of take some of that pressure off uh, while still being able to tread water would then just free free Horvat up to be a, a bigger difference maker at five on five, especially if you could pair him uh, with some um, legitimate top six wingers. So uh, I think that kind of player is just so important for this team where the only reason we've seen Sutter and Beagle both in the lineup at the same time is because they don't have enough penalty, uh, enough penalty killing centers. And right. so um, – that uh, that sort of upgrade that you would have. I mean, even if you have an average third line center kind of coming into the mix, that's just such an upgrade for this team in terms of what, what it would represent and upgrading the bottom six and just transforming it so that you don't have two lines at the bottom of, end of your roster that, that get caved in all the time. So yeah. definitely needs to be a top priority for the club. Yeah, just to kind of back up what you're saying for the season, Bo Horvat sitting at about 39% offensive zone starts. So he's uh, he's definitely still kind of that guy for the team. But just in terms of, uh, of, of PK tools that the team has to deploy, is that is that why Antoine Roussel is still in the lineup primarily? I mean, it, he's not really bringing anything else to the, to the game other than his, his PK ability. 100%. It's, it's really only that. That's become Roussel's only redeeming quality. And I think as soon as you see Tyler Mott ready to come back to the lineup and he'd kind of slot in into that PK role, you'll probably see, or at least I'd like to see um, Roussel, uh, that, that just be a direct exchange, Mott for Roussel, because uh, the, the look that, uh, that the look that Jace Howerlick has given them, I think he's been a, a good difference maker for them on the fourth line where his work rate, his engine has been running hot. He's creating havoc on the four check. Um, he's got some puck. He's got some at least average puck skills, which is what you want yeah. to see out of a fourth line or two. So I've really, I've really liked the, you know, what he's brought to the table. And I think, uh, especially the last couple of games, that fourth line has done a much better job of spending more of its shift in, shifts in the offensive zone and, and not getting caved in. So I definitely want to see Howard Luck stick in the lineup for now. Uh, and uh, and Michaelis, maybe you want to uh, swap out. Uh, I mean, it's tough with, with Michaelis because so far I don't think that um, he's had the best of starts. But at the same time, it's like the expectation was that he wouldn't have a great start because here's this kid. He, these are his first professional games coming, coming out of college, and he's coming in with completely cold feet having not played a, a competitive game in, in over a year, right? So you expect him against NHL competition in his first taste where he's coming off the taxi, ta- taxi squad with nothing but practice time. You expect him to look tough, uh, to, look, uh, to look like he's kind of failing to tread water. So, um, uh, I mean, yeah, fair, fair enough. You can kind of give him a, a look over the next uh, handful of games to just get his feet under himself. And I do think you see redeeming qualities in terms of mm. his skating ability to continue giving him a shot. But um, let's, let's hypothetically say that he, he may be that, that, that line of Michaelis stutter got at just isn't clicking. Then you've also got Zach McEwen in to kind of get a shot in, in the bottom six. And so just from that perspective, I mean, whether it's Michaelis got or Michaelis, uh, 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 Howard Luck, uh, I was meaning to say 
you know, I'd rather see those guys get a shot at that at that point rather than Roussel once uh, Mott comes back from the lineup as a penalty killing piece. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny what the what a huge difference just changing a couple of pieces that are not getting a lot of ice time can make it on the team, right? Like like putting in Michaelis and Howerluck has really kind of sped up that bottom six in a way that you probably wouldn't have predicted. Yeah, and I think it just speaks to um, the value of just being able to add a bit of speed to this uh, lineup. It's not even that Howerluck and um, and Michaelis are plus skaters. I, I'd rate them as, as as average skaters, in fact, but they, when they do get moving, they can move pretty well in a straight line. And I think that's just such an interesting um, way to, you know, it, it reflects just how slow the bottom, the rest of the bottom is. So when you look <laughs> exactly. at guys like Beagle and yeah. Sutter and, um, and Roussel's always tough for me to get a gauge on because there are some mom- moments where, where his motor is really going and he's disrupting plays. But then there are others mm. where the explosiveness in his stride just looks a little flat, but, um, no doubt. I mean, and, and that's why I think the team has been so, um, so reluctant to give on, give up on Jake for Tannen, uh, for the last year or so is that I think they see his speed and say, we don't have enough of that in, in our lineup. So, um, I think anything you can do over the course of the off season to add, uh, bottom six pieces that can control play at an efficient cap hit while also being able to add some pace to your group I think that's really important because especially when you look at a team like Vegas against Vancouver in the bubble that was the biggest advantage that they seemed to have was that that it was that they were uh bigger and faster and they just seemed to physically overwhelm the Canucks in situations like the forecheck um just along board battles and and that's ultimately what allowed them to control the run of play uh, and and I think that's the next element in terms of bolstering the bottom six. So I mean, the, the they're gonna have to go something like nineteen and eight to make the playoffs, right? I mean, even with Demko heating up, it's extremely unlikely this year. And even if they make it as the fourth seed, I mean, let's be honest, they're not doing anything in the playoffs. So. But I mean, with, with that said, I'm still legitimately concerned that the Canucks are going to go on a little bit of a run here leading up to the deadline. And we're going to see the team act as buyers going in and, and try and acquire these assets that you're talking about. So how do you see the, the, the trade deadline playing out here for the Canucks coming up? Right. And this was the most predictable timeline, uh, timeline wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, Where yeah. the team flames out uh, to start the season. Their playoff odds are completely down in the dumps. They need to go at something like a 120-point pace to make the playoffs. Yep. Um, they're temporarily without their best player. So every all logic would lead you to believe that the team would probably continue on the slide. But no, we're ahead of the trade deadline. So they're just going to go on this heater, this bender yep. that's going to make them – that, that that's going to give them some false sense of hope and belief here. Um, but no, in, in, all, um, uh, in all seriousness – they do need to keep sight of the bigger picture here. I think, yeah. uh, again, if you look at their um, playoff odds updated after these last three wins here, still at 6%, and you still need to play at something like 117, 118, 119 point pace to make it here. And, uh, and, and so it's not even just that you worry about them being buyers. It's forget that. They just need to sell assets, period, where yeah. you look at guys like, Tanner Pearson, and I know the team's discussed resigning him, but he's twenty. He's going to be twenty nine years old before the start of next season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the team's talked about 
you know, they're probably going to need two more years before they're actual contenders. And I don't actually disagree just in terms of looking at the cap profile um, and the fact that there isn't a whole lot of flexibility, flexibility that opens up this offseason. So in light of that, I mean, Pearson, you've got to sell on Sutter, Van, Hamannick, all these pieces, anything you can do to acquire as many uh, draft picks as you can, because those draft picks are going to be the ammunition, the currency that you can use to take flyers on guys in the offseason. With the expansion draft coming up, coming up the, one of the advantages that the Canucks, or at least the silver linings, I should say, the Canucks have with uh, Vertanen and Gaudet not necessarily um, lighting, it on, lighting the world on fire is that now you have expansion protection slots available both up front in your forward group and on the back end. So you're going to be able to target a lot of these teams that have intriguing kind of um, middle six pieces. And, and then really what you're looking to do there is find the next William Cross, find the next Jonathan Marcheseau, uh, find the next Eric Halla, right? And so that's, that's what I think the Canucks are in a position to do. Take advantage of, of other teams' crunchy expansion situations. And to do that, you're going to need enough draft capital to make it happen. You're only going to have that draft capital if you sell at the deadline. So really, I mean, people, I know a lot of the discussion will be, oh, like you're giving up on the season. You know, what about having success in the present? Well, that makes sense. But really what we're doing here is when we're selling, it's not that, oh, we have an eye towards the future and we only really care about contending three or four years from now. It's about selling and then just directly converting those assets into pieces that can help you for next season. So uh, and ensuring that what happened this year doesn't replicate itself. So I think if you look at all the expansion options that are going to be available, if you look at the fact that this is going to be a buyer's market and unrestricted free agency, even with the Canucks' cap constraints, they are in a position where they could pretty meaningfully overhaul their bottom six and kind of make, uh, make significant inroads in kind of completely restructuring the bottom end of their roster and, and kind of, building out the supporting cast if they do sort of approach this, these next, um, these next uh, six to eight months, the, the right way. And, and I think that has to be the number one priority, no matter how hot this team gets, because I just personally, I, I don't see them making the playoffs um, regardless of the fact that they are getting on a hot streak here. Yeah. And even with the hot streak, it, it just, it reminds me of last year's Canucks team. I mean, it's on the back, a great goaltending and a solid PK and a power play. Like that's, that's, that's what this team is right now. I mean, if they had even league average goaltending, they would be so much worse, which is incredible to think about considering where they sit positionally in the standings. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you, but I, again, just as, as a lifelong Canucks fan, I'm, I'm just so nervous about what this next year is going to hold for this team. It's just, it's uh Man, it, it could go pretty bad. So, uh, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit there, but uh, Jim, Jim Benning had a press conference. They got a whole lot of attention locally, but uh, none nationally. I think uh, 31 Thoughts basically just said, um, more or less, we're, we're kind of blowing it out of proportion. And uh, what else was Jim Benning supposed to say? And, you know, I, I think there is a little bit of truth to that. I mean, I, I don't know. He, like, he's, he's not going to sewer his own team. He's not going to say, hey, I effed up. I made these mistakes. I'm, I'm saddled with a ton of bad contracts that I signed, especially when those guys are still on the team. I mean, you, you can't talk about your employees that way. I, I think he's right in his assessment of two years for, for a, a real competitive window. I mean, like you're saying, just looking at the cap situation in two years, most of those contracts are off the book. Louis is gone. I mean, they're, they're still going to have Tyler Myers dragging them down, but 
there's just there's not a whole lot there but i mean what, what was your take on the whole jim betting press conference right so i do think there's some element of truth to that however at the same time i do think that the message that was sent was almost the opposite of what the fan base would have wanted to hear right, um, right i think right. You're right that you couldn't just go out there and sewer and say, oh, I effed up on uh, on building this team and I've got mm-hmm. so many bad contracts. I mean, nobody realistically would have expected that. But yeah. to have some level of just accountability and acknowledgement that what happened this season was unacceptable and that as the primary builder of the, of the team, that he does feel some semblance of responsibility and that um, that they have to now go and, you know, evaluate what's gone wrong and, and then just go, sort of go down that path, uh, the typical GM speak almost, where yeah. most GMs, when they're in that spot, they talk about, okay, like as, as, the, as the team builder here, I do assume responsibility for the way this year went and I'm going to evaluate top to bottom over the next few months, players, coaches, everyone, and, and just work to see what went wrong and ensure that it doesn't happen again. And so I think that's kind of rhetoric that that sort of walking down that path would have been a lot better than saying then like right off the right off the hop, they started throwing up these excuses about yeah. all the flat cap and the pandemic and the shortened season. And, oh, we're playing in the North Division rather than the Pacific one. And I mean, I just I, I think these are circumstances that every team deals with. And so I think those excuses just kind of ring a little bit hollow for fans that have invested so much and expected the team to take uh, a step forward or at least just hold their own after the kind of success that they had last year. And uh, I mean, truly it is unacceptable for the team to have Pedersen and Hughes on their ELCs and to be capped out with a team that, um, you know, to have an on ice product of this nature. Uh, And I I think just, just anything else, anything other than, throwing your hands up in the air and and blaming it on everything but yourself would have mm-hmm. kind of resonated a little bit better. Again, there would have been heat no matter what he said, right? There would have been criticism because people have made up their mind and I can understand why one way or another on Jim Benning, but just some level of, I think, responsibility and accountability. And I mean, I just look at in Toronto and I, I know, I, I know people hate the Leafs and, and I do agree that in the media, they, they um they get you know too much attention and a little bit too much adoration but uh this only one this example only comes to mind because of that that all that media attention but you look at Kyle Dubas for instance well when the team you know fell short last year for them the Leafs he's consistently a general manager that always takes responsibility always um even when it's perhaps not even that fair I mean injuries for instance um he 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 brought up the pittsburgh example that uh, the penguins last year went through all these injuries and and so it was just you watch any call to his press conference and that's a management group that always puts the onus on themselves and realistically if you look at any any area of life like forget being a gm of a hockey team you can only really make sustainable changes and improve on yourself and improve processes if you if you take responsibility for your actions and I think if if your first inclination, and this goes back a long time with this management group, where usually it would be about injuries and we don't have enough depth, and that was just the rhetoric every year. If you don't take responsibility for what you directly have control over, then you're not going to make improvements. 
Mm-hmm. And it's and so from that perspective, I, I think that's what fans were a little bit disappointed in, especially when it came to the deadline and saying we're going to take it day by day um, when a GM's role is the exact opposite. You've got to be thinking yeah. long term and much more than the day to day. The Canucks need to be proactive at this deadline. And, mm-hmm. um, and and I completely understand why a lot of the fan base has reservations and worries about how they're going to handle this deadline and beyond. Yeah. And I, I think those are totally fair. And just one, one thing I haven't really heard mentioned too much though, is everybody talks about firing Benning and I'm, I'm just curious what the replacement would be. I mean, uh, you, you brought up Kyle Dubas and you know, I'm, I'm a fan of their, their management office as well, but I think the fact is there's probably two or three executive offices like that in all of hockey, right? Most of those, uh, the other clubs are the yeah. old boys clubs that are going to operate in the same way in similar fashion to Jim Benning. So I mean, uh, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know where this is going. And again, I'm just, I'm super nervous for what's going to happen. Like, are we going to get a, a Dean Lombardi that's going to come in and run the team the same way that Benning would run in, but would, would run it, right? It, it just, it, I think that yeah. th- it's, it's few and far between for those truly pro- progressive uh, managers. See, that's a, that's a problem there, right? And this is where it comes down to ownership, mm-hmm. where, Again, if you've, uh, it's exactly as you said, if you were to move on from Jim Benning and just bring in uh, a, a, a manager in a, with similar philosophies and processes, then it's going to be a lateral move. It's just going to be yeah. uh, a new voice that makes much of the same kind of decisions, which is, it, it's not going to be any improvement, right? Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, if they do decide to make a move, it's incumbent on ownership to, um, to, to kind of dig deep here and to go through all the candidates. So look at the position that the team's in today where you have an elite core, but you need to build a supporting cast, you're tight on the cap. And so I think some of the top skills that you need to look for out of your next manager are astute cap management, are just generally top tier asset management, where you look at a lot of the kind of pieces that the Canucks have kind of had over the years, whether it's uh, Jake Vitanen or, or whoever, the, the, the organization has a tendency to kind of sell low on players rather than sell high. And so um, you need top uh, top tier asset management. Uh, and you're also going to just generally need to be able to identify market inefficiencies to flesh out your supporting cast. Mm-hmm. And so you look at kind of those attributes, you're not going to, in all likelihood, get those qualities from a manager that just follows the herd. And um, I think it was uh, Andrew Harris from Canucks Army who mentioned it the other way, uh, the other day where it's like, if your process in making decisions is the, is the exact same as 80% of the league, how can you expect to be better than 80% of the league? Right. right. If you're doing the exact same things, if your thought, if your thought processes and philosophies and how you, how you value, uh, value traits like size and, um, and, and intangibles and, and just how you view building a, a contender is the exact same as most teams around the league. Well, then it's how are you going to expect any results above the mean average, right? So I think that's where I'm not saying you have to bring in a contrarian, but someone who can construct a front office where there are a wide array of perspectives because you look at this kind of front office right now and what you've noticed is whether it's been Trevor Linden, whether it's been Judd Brackett, you're seeing dissenting voices, even with Lawrence, Lawrence Gilman Lawrence right, Gilman, right yeah. at the start. You're seeing smart people with different sort of perspectives and 
situations leaving the organization. And so there are just less and less voices at the table to where it's becoming an echo chamber there. At least, I mean, they do have other, um, I think, smart people in the organization for sure. Guys like Jonathan Wall and Aiden Fox and Ryan Beach, but I don't know how much they listen to those to those guys on a day-to-day basis, right? So I think the key with any next manager you have is you're going to have to be progressive. I mean, data tracking is coming into the NHL, and um, if you aren't paying attention to those things, and no one's saying go out there and data is the only thing you care about because it never should be, but you at least need to incorporate it as part of modern-day player analysis rather than just relying on your gut just relying on your emotion because that's what what's gotten the Canucks into this pickle uh, in the first place is relying on things like doing it, doing it completely the old, old way without any care to um, to basic underlying numbers. So um, I think whatever they do, it's now going to be on ownership to make the right decisions. It's above just management right now. Yeah. And what's, what's so funny to me, I mean, funny, not funny about, uh, about this management is, I mean, Jim Benning's weaknesses are exactly as you laid out, right? It's, it's uh, being able to work with the cap and do these kind of creative uh, things with it, with the contract and, and CBA, which is exactly Lawrence Gilman's skill set, who they, they let walk. And it, it just, it seems like, I mean, one of the, the key traits of a leader is his ability to assess where his weaknesses are and hire people that have those as strengths. And it, it seems like Benning doesn't want anything to do with that. And it's just, it, I don't know, man, <laughs> it's not, it's not giving me a, a whole lot of hope for the future. I just, I got one more Canucks question here for you before I wanted to do a uh, transition a little bit. Um, Alex Edler is, is a UFA uh, after this year. And uh, I think waving him to go anywhere is obviously, a, or not, not, not waving, sorry, but getting him to wave is no trade clauses and an obvious non-starter. But should he actually want to return next year? I mean, what, uh, what kind of contract are you offering him? Is it a, a one-year, two-and-a-half mil, something along those lines? Yeah, it's, it would have to be something, something like that. Uh, again, we're, when you look at Vancouver's cap situation, Yes, you do have money coming off the books, but after you reallocate it to pay Pedersen, uh, Hughes, and now that's your Demco too, yeah. you run pretty tight. You don't have a whole lot of flexibility to do a whole lot else. And so I think in light of that, you can't really spend much on Alex Edler, um, given that he's going to be another year older. And, and quite frankly, I just don't think that he's a high and top for defenseman anymore. I think he can help you out on, um, on, on a bottom pair is, is like a number five defenseman maybe, but um, he shouldn't be leaned on in higher leverage minutes. And especially if, especially if the idea is now we're going to go and perhaps let's hypothetically say it costs you two and a half million, you know, depending on what other possibilities are out there, I don't even know if two and a half million would be worth it. Not because Adler's not worth that, but because, that two and a half million could go towards acquiring a legitimate top four defenseman, which the club needs um, a lot more than another four or five kind of guy. So I think you almost have to prioritize things where first priority is going to be the, the, the RFAs, right. And then after that, you're going to have to look at this roster and, they're going to need a top six winger. They're going to need a top four defenseman. And so you have to address those things before you even worry about Alex Edler, because I don't think he's the solution to being your high end number four, uh, high end top four defenseman anymore. Um, because he clearly has slowed down. I think mm-hmm. there are still redeeming qualities, no doubt in his game. 
Uh, and he still is bearing a lot of tough matchups and that Schmidt-Edler pairing is actually playing really well. Yeah. Um, and so I think you almost have to view Edler as your fallback option of if we can't acquire a legit top four guy, we know we have Edler to resign and bring back for another year, but it's probably not your ideal sort of option to fill that hole. You probably want to be aiming a little bit higher than that. It's kind of an indictment for the team though, isn't it? That Alex Edler is still, I mean, you can make an argument for the third yeah. best D-man on the team, right? Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I'm, I mean, it's like, if you had Edler playing bottom pair minutes and, and, and just able to help you on the penalty kill, um, and you had him next to say uh, uh, a right-handed guy who was more mobile, right? Could really skate. Um, just picture picture Jack Rathbone, you know, coming into the lineup next year. Let's say he was a right shot defenseman. Like that would have been such a nice pairing, right? To have Edler yeah. as your veteran steady presence to guide a, a young rookie who has the explosive mobility and puck moving skill set to complement Edler. Like that's the kind of pairing that you know, you would have loved to love to see that's the kind of defenseman. Uh, if again, Rathbone was right-handed, which he isn't, but um, that's a kind of limited, limited role where Edler can be still be really effective. But um, just the fact that the Canucks don't have enough uh, de- defenders beyond Hughes and uh, Schmidt that actually moved the needle. It's the story of the last five years where Edler's still being asked to do a little bit too much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good way of putting it. Um, so just to to change gears a little bit here, I I, I know that you were mentored by the, the late Jason Botchford, and anybody familiar with the the Canucks market is obviously familiar with his work. I mean, he's uh, I, he was just the kind of the the touchstone for so many people who were fans of the Canucks. So could, could you just give us a, a few words on what it was like working with him and uh, just his influence on your work? Yeah, no, it was an absolute treat and honor to have the opportunity to work with him because the I remember the first time just talking to him was after I'd written one freelance piece for for the athletic I think it was on Bertanen and Bertanen and his zone entry playmaking and you know immediately he reached out and was ready to give me a ton of advice give me a ton of help and help me come up with future article ideas that I could write. And at the time that pretend piece was only meant to be like a, like a one-off, right. Where I pitched it. My freelance status wasn't meant to be an ongoing thing, but he kind of pushed for me behind the scenes to get that opportunity. So for him to, you know, make that effort. And then we talk all the time about what are good ideas to write about. And um, again, I mean, and I'm sure this was true for a lot of people because that's, that's just how he engaged so many people in the market was we DM for, you know, all, all day, every day uh, on Twitter, just constantly talk about the hockey team. And so I think those kind of experiences just shaped my impression of just how to view this hockey team and how to view being a reporter. And it allowed me to see his process for how he came up with ideas and how he covered the team. And so all of that just, it, it meant the world to me, uh, especially given the fact that even when I went to my first practice, he was the one that guided me and mentored me in terms of walking me through the interview process uh, and, and getting familiarized with players and coaches. He introduced me, right? He introduced me to Travis Green, introduced me to Bo. And I remember that's the first article I wrote that ever had quotes in it. And so just he was able to break the ice for me 
in such a meaningful way there. Um, and, and so, you know, for him to have that kind of impact meant a ton to me personally. And then all that he did for everyone else, right? He, he was always someone who had time for anyone in the market, no matter how big or small you were, he'd go and, and have that conversation with you. And so from that perspective, I mean, he was just lifeblood. He was the heartbeat of this market and he was just able to, he, he was the perfect reflection of what, of what the fan base wanted at the time. Right. And um, he just single-handedly shaped the conversation in the market. And um, you know, I, I just, I, it's tough for me to really articulate. And I'm sure a lot of, people who followed followed his work and followed who he was can kind of agree it's it's almost tough to articulate just how much he meant to people because it wasn't just like your typical journalist that you read or or your or the guy you you read on radio it's you you just developed this emotional connection with him even if you even if you weren't someone who got to interact with him personally just from being able to listen to him whether it was on podcast or radio and read his work it was such a personal connection and that's the biggest thing that you know, he had that impact on not only individuals like myself, but the entire market. Yeah, that's, that's true, man. And it, it seemed like, like he was definitely larger than, than life. And it seemed like his presence was greater than, than anybody else's presence in the media can carry him. I don't know about nationally, but it just seems like he almost had this kind of rock star thing to him, but it was never about him. It was about the team. And it was just, uh, it was, it was awesome to behold. He was, he was by far the, the number one reason for me to subscribe to the athletic, but I mean, it's, it's guys like you and, and uh, Thomas Trance that uh, keep me coming back. So, man, Harmon, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to Canucks today. And I maybe just let everybody know where they could find uh, find you and your work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you can find my work uh, uh, at The Athletic, as mentioned. And then uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Harmon Dial 2. So that's at H-A-R-M-A-N-D-A-Y-A-L 2. Uh, that's, uh, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, everybody, uh, make sure you follow Harmon and uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you next time. All right, buddy. That was awesome. I'll, I'll I just Sweet. ran too long on, on the Canucks question. So maybe I'll get you on a little bit uh, in the future and we could do some analytics chat if that's good with you. Yeah. hundred percent. Anytime. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again. And I'll shoot you a message tomorrow when, uh, when it's all live. Sounds good. Take care. All right. You too, buddy. Bye.